Welcome to the Own Every Moment Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Hamlin, and here we will focus on the health of our mind, body, and spirit. We welcome entrepreneurs, thought provokers, spiritual thinkers, rabble-rousers, and leaders from all walks of life, bringing awareness to everything humans do. Get ready for the show. Welcome to the Own Every Moment podcast. Today, my guest is extreme ski pioneer who was inducted in the Ski Hall of Fame in 2016 with his brother, John. Pato Magazine named the Egan brothers among the most influential skiers of all time. He has appeared in 14 Warren Miller ski films, including this year's Future Retro. He has produced dozens of award-winning film and TV shows. He has authored two books, and he has a brand-new book called White Haze coming out this winter. He has skied the world, and uh, we're so happy to have him. Please welcome Mr. Dan. Dan Egan. Uh, Pete, it's great to see you, my friend. Great to see you. I know. I know. So uh, let's just get going here. Just um, why skiing, man? I mean, how did a kid growing up in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, and Milton, Mass, skiing the, the huge steeps of Blue Hills, how did this happen? How did you make your living skiing the world? Yeah, you know, I think it was uh, through the collective uh you know the collective that it could be done the intention we had the intention to do it you know it wasn't a random thing it was something that uh, my brother john and i had thought about and talked about and dreamt about without really understanding how it would happen um and you know my brother's six years older so you know have an older sibling kind of plant these ideas in your head was really a powerful thing so when he went to Sugarbush right out of high school to become a ski bum and then, you know, discovered he was a pretty good skier and started to compete on the pro race tour. Uh, they used to come to Neshoba Valley, the, the racers, and he stayed at the house. Uh, my parents' house. I was in, I was in, you know, ninth grade. And um, John said to me, Hey Dan, I'm putting on my work clothes today. You know, and he was in his stretch pants, his race sweater, and he was off to a race. And I, that was such a powerful impression on me that, Oh, there's another way to make a living that, that you don't have to go the normal route and that he was doing it uh, was really powerful. So you know, based on that conversation, as we progressed through the years, we would dream about skiing around the world and dream about trying to make uh, the Egan brothers a, a thing. And then it just manifested itself. It kind of took care of itself once we sort of moved, it moved in that direction. It, it's just sort of oversimplified way to say it, but without that piece, I don't think it ever, ever happens. <laughs> so, so you graduated from Babson college, one of the most premier entrepreneurial schools in the country, right? I mean, just the great reputation. Um, so first, two questions on that. First is, uh, what did your parents say when you said, oh, I think I'm going to hurl myself off cliffs first? <laughs> and this follow-up is, you know, how did that education play in helping to build that brand, to, to build this this movement? Well, it was, it was interesting. I really, um, I went to Babson 
because I had I was a soccer player and I got recruited. Of course, they were they still are a, a New England soccer dynasty. You know, five national championships, multiple times Final Four, and uh, I had played in high school with the coach on a men's team, uh, and and I knew him. Uh, and I, I didn't have the grades to get in to Babson. So I went off and did a postgraduate year and, and in Maine at Bridgeton Academy, learned how to study and, you know, eventually got, you know, got into Babson, uh, which was, you know, I think sort of showed my parents that, you know, I could work towards a goal. And then once I was in Babson uh, and soccer, you know, really started to, take over my life, I was struggling with grades. So I would take the winter off and, uh, and go ski. And I would, I would move to Sugarbush in the winter and would wash dishes and ski and ski with my brother and, and come back to Babson in the summer. And I would go to school all summer with, there was fewer distractions and play soccer in the fall. And, and I never got behind with my class. I stayed moving forward. Uh, and then the second winter I did that, I moved to California to be a ski bum and uh, flip hamburgers and ski and made it every time the Red Sox uh, opening day, I knew it was time for me to get back to Boston and get, get re-enrolled re in school. And I would do that. Um, so I, I sort of built some trust with my folks because I did what I said I would do. I went away. I came back and I stayed on pace. Um, and I think that that proved a lot to myself that one, I could stay committed uh, to sort of a not traditional route. Um, and uh, my senior year, the college was a little uneasy with having somebody outside, you know, trying the system, so to speak. So they, when I went back in that spring to catch up my junior year, they said, we'd really like it, or we suggest that you don't leave this winter. We'd like to see you. So I went to school 12 months in a row uh, that year, 86, 87, uh, May to May and graduated on time with my class, uh, skied on the college ski team and, and did that sort of thing. And, and it was, you know, so by the time I get out uh, of school, uh, John and I had started a various other smaller businesses. Um, while I was at BAPS and I started a sunglass business uh, with my trips back and forth across country, I would stop at antique stores and buy uh, old eyeglasses, antique frames, and I would convert them into sunglasses and sell them during the summer in Harvard Square. And um, so, you know, I had, and then the other business John and I had is we threw booze cruises on the harbor uh, and would hire bands to play, you know, the music business. And we would promote the bands and have, sell tickets to the booze cruises. And we had a pretty good little business going. I was selling sunglasses and throwing parties. <laughs> uh, so my parents knew that I was committed to sort of, you know, being an entrepreneur. Babson set me up for that. Um, you know, I, I would say that at first, of course, they weren't thrilled because they didn't understand what the opportunity would be as a skier, you know, uh, and neither did I, to be honest. Um, 
But I had known that John had a little bit of success in the early 80s and had stopped, but he had made a name for himself. He 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 had been in a few films and and he he had a lot some popularity and, and some success success. So you know, then, of course, that's when the collective kicks in, right? When we decide to head off onto the West and compete as the Egan Brothers on the Pro Mogul Tour, sponsored by your mama and my mama. You know, uh, VHS was just beginning. The VCRs was a, was the technological boom of the day. And the ski industry was going to invest in these VHS tapes. Um, and being from BAPS, and I understood that there was an opportunity there. Um, and so, you know, we found a home, uh, in that distribution and, you know, in my new book, 30 years in a white haze, we talk about that extreme skiing wasn't so much a sport as it was entertainment Mm -hmm. that we ended up in your living rooms. Um, when I talk to kids today, I always explain to the VCR to me is what the YouTube is to them. Mm -hmm. And, and so once we, you know, we were invited to try out for the North Face Extreme team and they were launching a video series. I quickly went to the producer and said, I would like to sell these tapes. Um, so I actually got the worldwide rights to that VHS film, the first film we made together, and I had the distribution rights. Um, that went well, so I picked up a couple of the titles from other producers. Um, and then eventually Warren Miller made me his East coast rep. He gave me every video store East of the Mississippi. And, you know, back in the eighties, there were a lot of video stores. Um, so I was now shipping out of my parents' attic cases of videotapes, uh, for myself and other producers. And, and really that's what created the value for the sponsors because now we could deliver on the promise. If you pay us to wear your clothing, we'll put you in these movies Mm -hmm. that would happen. We could control distribution. We could grow the numbers. Um, so, you know, for me, it was seeing the full picture of that. Um, from there, we launched our own national ski tour where I would tour the country and show the movies I was in. Uh, I worked with Warren Miller hands in hand during his tours and had learned how to narrate movies and produce movies with Warren, uh, his help and his mentorship. So over time that grew, uh, to that led us to cable television and, and we had content. And so from there we were able to build a business and my parents, you know, I think, were cautiously watching from the sideline and they were seeing the steps and, you know, I was paying rent. I wasn't living there for free. They, they were holding it, you know, holding me tight to, to being a legitimate business. And that, that's how it happened. Wow. That's amazing. So just take an opportunity where opportunity is. Yeah. So I think I still have a, a VHS copy of Return to Shred Eye around here. <laughs> Love that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, maybe just maybe just a little sidebar. I would love to just hear your thoughts. I mean, Warren Miller, if if you skied or you know, if you're anyhow connected to the ski industry, Warren Miller is this legendary character that you would look forward to every year seeing this new release. And so, what did that relationship? How did that relationship with Warren for you and your brother? Or just what what did that do? I mean, like having a mentor and having someone like that. Yeah, I mean, that was really powerful. One thing that Warren helped me see is that if I attached my 
business to a business bigger than mine, it was leverage and growth. So by being part of his film, he had a bigger audience than I could ever create. And then being part of that film in a way that was relevant then became the goal. And so what I did is I saw the opportunity with Warren and I said to him that I wanted to travel the world and go wherever CNN was. Yeah. And of course, Warren loved that idea. He, he thought that was, you know, brilliant. So, you know, we went to the Berlin Wall in 1989. We went and skied during Perestroika in, in the USSR before it broke up. We skied with the Kurds during the first Persian Gulf War. And, and this momentum uh, helped us brand the Egans as skiing the most remote regions of the world. Uh, it gave Warren uh, a, a relevant topics every year uh he was you know it put the made the footage more valuable because the news station cnn wanted it fox you know these outlets wanted this footage because who would have ever thought to ski with the kurds and of course our message was peace world peace through skiing and mountain cultures and we were selling a lifestyle um and that really caught fire. So, you know, having Warren as a mentor sort of showing me that that door could be opened um, and his willingness to risk and partner with me uh, was really quite unique. It, it ended up that I actually, I own my footage in his movies. Wow. And, and that that was a relationship really he's never done with any, even to this date. So, you know, what Warren liked was bold, confident people because that's what he was. So when I matched his boldness and his confidence, he recognized what that was and he empowered that for me. Um, and he did that in multiple ways um, right up until, you know, his passing a few years ago. Um, so, you know, the, the last time I saw Warren was at the Yellowstone Club, which is, you know, the most exclusive private ski resort in the world, where he was, you know, the, the loved and really the name and the face of it. And I said, hey, Warren, it, it's Dan. And he, he says, Egan, what'd you sneak in? <laughs> <laughs> and it was that, you know, sort of understanding of where we both came from yeah. that, you know, yeah. we're willing to work harder than the next guy. Mm -hmm. and, and that joke really summed that up for me. Like uh, even, you know, at 90, whatever he was, he, he, he still had that quick wit. Yeah. 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 So, so you and your brother skiing the world still skiing the world 2016 you get the call you've been inducted to the ski hall of fame i mean what what does that mean to you what does that what does that feel like yeah that was um that was quite something for me really um it was um it's something you don't think a lot about you know when you're doing it that someday you'll be recognized for having fun and skiing around the world uh, and the impact that had on others i think uh, the Hall of Fame for me was summed up by a, 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 another guy who was being inducted with. He said, it, it's a funeral, it's a graduation, <laughs> and a marriage all wrapped up in one. And, uh, it was kind of true, you know, but what it really did for me was uh, it made me pause and, and, and put my career into perspective. Um, and, and that was helpful for me uh, as a business person and personally. To, to put it in perspective and to somewhat put it on the shelf uh, to say, yeah, that was a period of time in my life 
Uh, it was successful um, and validating. Um, and so I think that perspective was, was for me, very helpful. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, to be able to do that with uh, my childhood hero, my brother, uh, was, was really something. So uh, it, it was a nice thing uh, to have happen. Uh, the Hall of Fame is in Ishpening, Michigan, up in the UP. Uh, you know, it's a it's an old building. It, you know, people always say, "Why isn't it in Park City or Vail or Aspen?" But that's uh, Ishmaning was the first organized site of skiing. The first oh. ski competition and was uh, the miners and the Norwegian miners uh, built a ski jump up there, and it's still there. Oh. Um, so the place, the town, has a lot of history. Um, and, um, you know, I do a lot of work now with the, with the hall um, to, you know, they need help to, to stay afloat, particularly now in COVID. So um, I'm now the MC of the hall, which is really oh, wow. even more special to me that I get, you know, to induct uh, the legends of Bodie Miller and, and others into the Hall of Fame. And um, yeah, being somebody who likes history and likes the connection of things and appreciate uh, what goes into to winning, you know, medals and, and accomplishing a lot. It's really quite a, a gift and an honor to to do that. That's nice. <clears throat> so on a personal note, I mean, you know, I've known you for a long time and, and, and really I point to you as a person in my life that really um, showed me about a higher power, showed me about about believing in something outside yourselves that, that we're here for a bigger purpose that we're that, that and so I guess my question around that is is you know I know you're a man of faith and how has your faith guided you in living this life and and you know a life that millions and millions of kids would just only die for and dream you have been able to live it and, and how has your faith played into that yeah I mean uh, you know my parents were extremely faithful people my grandparents uh you know our family was bathed and baptized in catholicism and of course as a young as a teenager and a young man i i would rebel against that thought uh, of sort of the confinement of that um and you know i as a young boy uh, in the pew, hearing that uh, somebody was going to save me, I always wondered, for, what do I need saving from? Well, I don't, you know, I have my parents and I live in this house and but sort of save, why do, what, what's that mean? I, I, I don't, I, I'm doing okay. Uh, but of course, there comes times where we actually need guidance we need we need to be saved we need to be encouraged uh we become desperate at some point and uh, as a boundary tester my whole life wanting to see the edge go over the edge i don't stop at the edge i launch off the edge uh you know in business and in, in skiing and in soccer and other sports I, I i go over the edge uh and so there came a time where you know believing in something really helped me um and I, I always liked the, the story of Jonah because uh, Jonah, uh, he, he, he converts through his disobedience at first because uh, he disobeys God and goes on the ship. And then there's the storm. So they throw him overboard. And uh, the whole crew 
uh, converts to uh, the one true God. None of them were Hebrews except for Jonah. And then, of course, Jonah gets swallowed three days. Of course, we all have the at some point in our life have the belly of the whale experience where we realize our disobedience uh, didn't pay off and we can't get out of this one. Uh, So like Jonah, you know, I've had to gaze towards the heavens uh, and uh, the simple act of gazing uh, upon the Lord uh, is really all it takes. And he's vomited out on the beach and uh, been on the beachhead. And then he obeys and he converts the whole city of Nineveh. So as a teenager, the lesson there is, yeah, if you want to disobey, disobey. Others will be converted. If you want to obey, obey. Others will be converted. You know, but that's the beauty of free will. Right. Mm -hmm. So so, uh, you know, this has stayed with me and um, and really helped me. Um, you know, and, and today, you know, I'm proud uh, and uh, uh, to practice my faith, to participate in my faith, uh, to actively uh, promote uh, other help spirituality and, and, and others. Um, and so I think that journey for me, you know, started with the fact that my parents built a good foundation uh, as a boy right from wrong, right? In the foundational years, before I got to be a teenager, they allowed the rebellion as a teenager because I think they understood that the foundation was under it. And so when the rebellion was done, the acting out of the teenage years, I turned back to the foundation that had worked. And I I think, you know, parents sometimes forget you know, in this age to be where we let kids do it. Well, you know, I don't want to offend them. I'd like to be their friend. I'd rather please them than provide for them. Uh, and we sort of chip away at that foundation of right and wrong because the boundaries are confusing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always say if you built a good foundation, then go for a strong confliction. Let the teenage years be crazy mm-hmm. and trust the foundation. These days, we want to minimize the convict, the confliction. We don't want the kids to be confused or struggle or we try to help them. But what we're really doing there is 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 limiting their experience of coming back to the foundational. They have to test the edge. That's the nature of teenage. Uh, Those teenage years, if you're not testing the boundaries, well, what are you doing? You're wasting wasting valuable years that will spill over to the 20s. Right. So. Get the thing wrapped up and put the bed by 19, right? Um, and that's sort of the counsel I give to parents, of, of, you know, and the kids I work with. What, um, along that point, just thinking, what are, what are three lessons, like life lessons as you, as you know, I, I, I know you and I know you're, you're hardly done. <laughs> you're, I feel like some days you're just starting following your socials and this new book and, you know, new, I mean, I just like, holy cow, this guy is just, just scratching the surface. He's just starting. But up from now, you know, up till now, if you could look and just say, these are three rock solid lessons that I've learned that you share with with younger men, younger people. Three three things that you know that this if you if you could grab onto these three things, then then you can have success. Well, well, I think it's important to know what you do, how you do it, and and who you know. Who you know, what what you know, 
and how you do it, right? Those three things are really important. So our, our, who we know, you and I, you know, we, we know each other, right? And, and in, through our relationship, uh, we've helped each other, right? So I've revealed myself to you. You've revealed yourself to me. Well, that's the essence of relationship, right? And that's, that can be built on right? So the more relationships you have with people, the bigger your network and the bigger the network, the more potential you have, right? Uh, and through the knowing, there's a becoming, right? Uh, oh, I know him and I know the work ethic. I know what they do. I know how hard they try. I know what, they, what they're made of, right? Uh, and through that, uh, the becoming, there's a belonging, Right now, I belong to something. I belong to this network of people who know me and trust me. Right. So, in the becoming and the belonging, it's so important. Right. Um, and that's how you land your first job. Right. That's how you start to move forward. Um, you know, when Warren recognized the boldness and the confidence in this Boston kid, he respected it. Right. Uh, so, I wasn't afraid. Right. I wasn't afraid to reveal myself to him. I I wasn't afraid to have a relationship with him. I wasn't afraid to jump over the bar that he set, which was pretty high. Um, and, and he saw that. So he saw what we call, you know, we, we termed the down home work ethic. Um, and he, he, what he saw was a reflection of himself. Right. So ultimately that's what we want to do. Right. We want to, get into these situations where people know who we are, what we do and how we do it. And if that is a truth, then the whole world opens up to you. Right. Um, there's no real need to be bashful about what you know, how you know, and what you're going to do. Right. That that's just not letting this light shine. Um, so, you know, I think that that is how Babson came to know me as a gay kid that wouldn't quit. You know, took the SATs five times, two years applied, five interviews. You know, like I kept knocking on that door, right? Um, they didn't ever let me in because of the grades. They let me in because they were just kind of tired of hearing from me. Warm out, you know? Uh, and that's how I played soccer. I wore people out. I just I just ran until you couldn't, until the other guy wore out. Um, it wasn't necessarily skill or talent. I, I'm short, I'm slow, you know, uh, but I'm tenacious, right? Mm. So so that that's the And this is interesting times, Pete. You know, COVID, of course, you know, when the ski area is all shut down and all these sort of things, you know, I looked around and I said, opportunity. There's nothing here but opportunity. I instantly went back to uh, to the depression in the 30s and said, who, who succeeded there and how and why? Okay. Uh, there's, you need an example. You know, today I was thinking about this. I was, all I see is opportunity today. I just see opportunity, you know, there's so much opportunity, uh, for, for, for business, uh, to do it a new way, you know, uh, so much of what we do or what I've done, you know, you know, wiped out in a heartbeat, right. Uh, productions, uh, face-to-face camps, um, all these sorts of things. So now we're online coaching. Uh, we, you know, as my production company quickly 
got into uh, virtual trade shows and product displays and and how to broadcast via Zoom and other platforms. We just started meshing together technology to create something for the need, right? Um, And so the launching in these times, it's beautiful, right? Because it's like uh, it hones you, right? This is training. This is what your message is. I'm watching your stuff and you're talking about, yeah, stay fit. Stay grounded. Be grateful. Move forward. Right? Like, do yeah. the basics. Do the basics and launch. Right? And and that's kind of what I have found. And and you know, I mean, I I, I don't tell too many people what I've accomplished in COVID because it would like they wouldn't believe it. You know, there's a new barn on the roof. It has new rafters. Uh, you know, like, and that that was like. A side job, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, like you said, I've launched two new podcasts designed by tradition with a new partner in Alps and Meters Clothing. Um, uh, the Ski Talk um, uh, podcast on Facebook um, every other week. And and the book, you know, it allowed me to finish the book uh, and get that launched. Uh, 30 Years in a White Haze, my third book. Um, and, and that's, again, just the tip of the iceberg. Well, this, I, I love that message, man. I, I, uh, this is, this is the time, you know, this is, this is, this is the time to innovate. This is the time to be. So I love that message, man. I love it so much. And I, I, I hope more people can hear it. Um, so speaking of white haze, can you tell us when's it coming out? What's the, what's the vibe? What's the feel? What's the mission of this book? I'm so excited. I can't wait. Uh, you know, it's fun. It's, um, you know, back in, uh, I think it was like 2005, 2006, uh, Warren Miller Entertainment fired me. And I had been associated with Warren Miller Entertainment since 1985. And um, at, uh, at my last role with Warren Miller Entertainment was I uh, oversaw 21 of their markets uh, for the annual film. I was the PR agency in 21 markets, uh, every Chicago East, basically. And I was thinking about the poor bastard uh, in New York who had to call Dan Egan to tell me I was out, you know? I was like, I would kind of had some compassion for the guy, right? Yeah. Uh, kind of a weird situation. Yeah. There's this, you know, ski guy, right? I got to let him go. Uh, some stuffed shirt had made a decision, and that was it. And um, I got thinking to myself, what would Warren do? Mm. Right, mm. Warren had long, they had long since fired Warren, right? Um, and there was slowly fewer and fewer people even knew Warren at the company. I was one of the last. Um, so I thought, thirty years in a white haze. I'm going to write the book. That's what Warren would do. Warren would write a book. Uh, his books, Wine, Women, and Warren. You know, uh, lurching from disaster to the next disaster. All his titles were always great. Um, and so that's where, you know, I had been wanting to write it. And, you know, that's that's really quite a while ago, 15 years ago, I started it, um, had developed the whole concept and everything. But around the Hall of Fame, my good friend Eric Wilburn, co-author, asked me, you know, he wanted to do a book. And I said, oh, I got it. I've got the title. I'm all set. I don't need any help. Right. Uh, but I, of course I needed help. Uh, so about, you know, eight, nine months later, I called him up and said, I need help. Uh, 
and so together we were able to get this thing across the finish line and uh, with our good friend Matt Pepin the senior sports editor at the Boston Globe uh, doing the initial edit for us um, we were able to make it you know sort of a Boston project um, and and get it for moving forward the story is really uh you know, the worldwide adventures, but it's also the evolution of extreme skiing through technology. Uh, how did it come to be? Uh, I believe that the extreme skiing movement in America, like everything in America, we MTV it. We glitz and glamour, we package, we sell it, we sponsor it, right? Uh, we're not alpinists. That, that's like too, too highbrow for an American, you know? Uh, the European alpinists, yeah, they were... <laughs> Those extreme skiers skied some amazing things. Fall, you die, that sort of thing. But we were showmen in the 80s. We wore day glow clothing, one-piece suits, hairbands, big hair. Uh, you know, we were making the first real rock vi- music videos. You know, MTV was out. Our, you know, wasn't a lot of, you know, MTV, mindless television. There wasn't a lot of, like, substance to what we were doing. We were just launching off cliffs and, and making sort of a travelogue film. Um, and so that story, I think, has its roots in the hot dogging, the freestyle, the 70s, uh, the hot doggers. That's really where our kinship is. Um, and through the evolution of that, you know, you have this thing called extreme skiing. So I tell that story from Stein Erickson and his first front flips uh, in the 50s to the extreme skiing of the 80s and the 90s and now what they call the big mountain free ride, you know, and uh, so there's another book to catch up with that, but we take it, you know, through through our era and we tell the Egan brothers story, you know, uh, growing up in Boston, my grandparents, my grandfather was superintendent of Boston schools. Uh, he helped to usher in uh, the uh, segregation of the schools and the integration of, of the schools uh, before force busing. Um, and he was uh, really a tri- way ahead of his time uh, in, in Boston and what he was able to accomplish. And my grandfather uh, lived in the highest house in the city. Uh, my mom grew up in the house that was the highest house in the city, and she learned to ski down the medium strip of the Bellevue Parkway uh, in West Roxbury uh, with one pair of skis and boots that she scared, shared with her five brothers. And so we tie all that together. Um, And in my grandparents' house, uh, the family tree was on the wall. The family tree my grandmother had painted on on the kitchen wall. And uh, one thing as a boy that stood out to that was uh, the Daniels uh, Gillises, my mom's maiden name, who had passed away. My mom's twin, Daniel Gillis, died in Korea. He was a pilot um, and uh, and died in Korea. Um, and my brother Dan died as an infant. Uh, so, and then my cousin Dan was a great hockey goalie, and he was given a full scholarship to play to Boston college hockey and tragically died uh, in a car accident Um, so I would as a small boy see the D's on the family tree uh, and none of them had lived past the age of 24 Um, so you know here I was an extreme skier living on the edge uh, and in 1990 uh, I was lost in a storm in Russia that killed over 15 climbers. 
and uh, a Russian saved my life. He found me in a snow cave and I was lost in that storm for over 38 hours. Um, and the, after the Russian brought me back to life, uh, the next day we rescued 14 climbers and brought them to safety. And we made it through the ice fields uh, in the crevasses. Um, and so I escaped death. And uh, the book sort of looks at, uh, you know, that that was the beginning of my adult life, uh, May, May 2nd, 1990, when, when I did not join my, my brother, my uncle, and my cousin on the wall. Um, and so uh, from there, the book launches forward into the ski career and how it happened in the relationship with Warren Miller and the history of extreme skiing. Exciting, man. Wow. I know. I can't. There's so many stories um, yeah. from yeah, your couldn't career. couldn't tell them all. Pete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I guess I got one more question for you, if that's if, if you know, and I think this is, goes along this theme of owning every moment. And, and, you know, when you fall down, when you go off the rails, when you end up in a snow cave for 38 hours, you know, in that moment, you know, I think, um, and I think you were touching on it before about teenagers, you know, and kids just kind of like coddling them along on this path, you know, but like, and now more than ever in the time of COVID or this the time it's like when it's time to go, go time. And that's another thing that I've learned from you is like, it's go time, baby. Like no excuses. It's go time. But in that moment, you know, what does that, does that, does that mean anything to you? Like, how do you own every moment? How do you own that moment when it's go time, when it's, when you're going to jump off that cliff, when you're going to, you're in that business meeting, like that moment, you know, you know that moment. Like, how do you do it? Well, I've often described my life as living without a net. You know, that uh, I'm willing to live without a net. I, I've stepped outside of the safety net of corporation job or, you know, sort of uh, a predestined uh, situation, right? Um, and in those situations where, you know, I walk outside the house and, and almost on a daily basis, as I tell myself, living without a net, you, gotta, you, you can't, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pull this off. You gotta make it work. Um, and, you know, it, it's, uh, it's hard for people to understand, but when I was in the snow cave freezing to death, um, you know, there, I, I was at peace. And uh, I came to understand that in that moment, in my white light experience, that uh, uh, death is a very human experience, that uh, the ones who are lucky enough to pass on, it's peaceful. I was in a very good place, and I knew I was. But I also knew that my brother wasn't, that, that he, he, he was going to have the human experience. He was going to live, <laughs> potentially live with my death. Uh, and why, why I pondered that, what would that be like for him? Uh, because I, was, I knew I was going, where I was going was going to be okay. Um, and, and talk about being in the moment, right? Uh, that there's no greater example for me than, than that. Uh, knowing that, uh, I'm okay here at 18,000 feet, freezing to death. I'm going to be okay. Um, and, and that, that sort of idea that I'm okay. Right. Uh, when I was a younger man and would jump off those cliffs, uh, with my skis on, there would time would stand still. You know, as I hit that edge, I called it the internal now. It, it just seemed to last forever. And the more patience I had to be in that space, the bigger cliff I could jump off of uh, because I wouldn't panic. I would just, I'm going to land. I'm coming down, right? 
and I would work on more like the trajectory where where the landing was going to be, rather than worrying about what would happen, right? Um, and in business, uh, you know. You know, we all we all need help. We all need encouragement, right? So, I have friends. You others. I have friends. I'll call them if I'm down. You know, I have one friend. When I call him, he knows I'm struggling. He just answers the phone and says, "Make the next call. Could change your life. Could change your life. Pick up the phone. What do you call me for? Make the call that's going to make a difference. You know." And, and, you know, that's what we need, right? We need those sort of friends to support us, to help us, and to encourage us. Um, and so this idea, I like your idea. I like your message of owning every moment of, like, uh, you know, it's okay to have compassion and empathy for others, but it's super important to have it for ourselves. If I can be compassionate and have empathy for myself, that's going to help me extend that to others. Um, and so sometimes I just have to cut myself a break. Maybe it's not my day. Maybe, maybe I do need to you know, sit in bed a little longer and rest um, and, and just kind of refortify. Um, and so I think understanding that's okay. Every day, you know, it's not going to be a home run. I just need a couple singles. You know, I just, I just, you know, a little bit at a time. Don't try and win the whole game in the first play. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Well, Dan, it's been a complete honor. I mean, you got so much going on. The pad, the two podcasts, the book coming out. Ski clinics are starting back up. I saw. How do we get on your ski clinics? How do we get your book? How do we? Find, where do we find you? Where, where, where's the best way to find you? Uh, we launched a brand new website, dan-egan.com. Uh, everything's right there at dan-egan.com. You can always go to skiclinics.com yeah. to catch up with my ski activity. Uh, on Facebook as well. I'm Dan Ski Egan on Insta. And um, of course, uh, the White Haze, 30 years in a White Haze is white haze.com. Um, so uh, check it out. We're, we're taking pre orders, of course. Nice. And, nice. Uh, nice. You know, I'm happy happy for you, man. It's great. I I uh, follow you as well. I, and uh, your, your messages have impacted me. Oh, thanks, Dan. I appreciate that, man. I just, yeah, I think at the same. You know what you're talking about is, and I, I think it's just like, if not, if not now, when? You know, like here it is. Like I'm going to make this happen, and I, I believe that every human has a message to share, and that's that's our community. And so, yeah, I'm really appreciative. So, I think you're, uh, I think you're chapter 40, 41. Yes, yes, that's right. And I talk about it's funny you were talking about the tenacity. I, I, I backstory. I met Dan. I don't want to give too much away from the book, but you know, I would pick up basketball game at a retreat, and you know, I was struggling, man. I was I was pretty rough, and and uh, so there was a little men's pickup in the game, and, and we're playing, and this guy in Tevis is like covering me, and he's like all over me, and stealing the ball, and blocking my shot. Couldn't shoot for shit, but he's like, oh. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And you know, and from there, my you changed my life, man. It set me on a set me on a path of uh, of of you know not not living one day without without uh, without being grateful and without without knowing this life is a gift and I can do more with my life. So I'm very appreciative of our relationship and it means a lot. Yeah, you've done a lot. Uh, yeah. you watching, watching uh, what you've achieved has been uh, been amazing. And yeah, it's inspired me. 
Yeah. I feel like, you know, I'm turning 50 on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like uh, I was, I was listening to this guy and he was like, he's like, yeah, it's like going into the locker room at halftime, you know, making some adjustments, you know, you're up by seven, you know, and, uh, and I, that's how I feel like, I feel like I'm, uh, I feel like I'm ready to go. I'm ready for the second half and, and, and get going. So hopefully our paths will cross even more in the next 50. So I hope so. I think the beauty of 50, uh, this was for me, I hope you have the same experiences. Uh, I realized I had nothing left to prove and uh, what a comfort that was that I I could stop the proving and start more of the providing and uh, sharing and giving back uh, it was very significant for me turning 50 when I realized that um, and it has really made a big shift uh, with the businesses because now I just try and help others do what I've already done and that's my mission statement and um, yeah. and I that that has brought a whole different angle to, to it all. So I, nice. I'm happy birthday. Yeah, thanks. thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's an accomplishment. You, you, you weren't going to make it past 25. So no. that's, that's uh. pretty good. <laughs>